All right, Seattle, are you ready? Are you sure you're ready? All right. It is so great to be here. Jenny Durkin, your mayor. And I got to tell you, I am thrilled tonight. You are in for such a treat. Eli Sanders is here. Um, his book's in the back. You've read him in The Stranger, wrote one of the most compelling stories about a horrific, terrible crime in this city, but gave it such a human element. If you haven't read the book, do it. It really will change your life. And then there's my friend Preet Bharara. Yeah. I was so lucky on so many fronts because I got to serve under President Barack Obama. And if you don't miss him, you shouldn't be here. Um, and the day I was nominated, I was nominated with this guy from New York named Preet Bharara. And we served together as US attorneys and he is a dear friend. And if you want to look for someone who is, has integrity, intelligence, and compassion, and a wicked sense of humor, you're in the right place. And at the Department of Justice, we'd often talk about the phrase, neither fear nor favor, because our job really was to do the right thing and not have fear of anyone in doing the right thing, nor show favor. Nobody exemplified that more than Preet. He did big cases and little cases. He stood up for the little guy, was not afraid to slay the dragons. And through it all, he had one of the most wicked senses of humor ever. But he would take a case with deep intelligence, figure out how to get there. Together, we helped craft some of the cyber strategies for us because we knew cybercrime was coming. So I just want to say it's such an honor to have him here. He's going to really give a short version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show since we're at the Neptune. Yeah, it's, it's happening. Um, and with that, I'll bring in Eli and Preet. Come on in, guys. And save your really hard questions for the end. Welcome. Uh, I want to hear from the mayor some more. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so congratulations, first of all, uh, on landing on the bestseller list today, the New York Times bestseller list. You, you should make, you should, you should be more specific. Uh, the number? <laughs> number, number four. four. And it doesn't surprise, this was a really fascinating book to read. It's a wonderful guide to how justice is actually practiced in this country, how it fails, how it succeeds, and how, as you point out over and over, when we talk about the system, whether it's the justice system or any system, we are ultimately talking about a collection of human beings. Their strengths and their flaws and the lessons they've learned. And this book is full of important lessons that you learned along the way. Before we 
get to those, I want to start by asking you to give us just a short, short sketch of how your life brought you to this powerful perch where you learned all these <laughs> lessons. Yeah. United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which, as you point out, is often known as the Sovereign District. So, um, why are you laughing? <laughs> that's, that's cool. Um, it means independence. So I, I had a sort of roundabout route uh, to my current life. I, um, sometimes I tell people the best way to get the, the best snapshot of my biography is to look at my Twitter bio, which says among the most important, not all the things, but the, um, among the most important things, because it says uh, banned by Putin, which I was because of a case we brought against a notorious arms trafficker named Victor Boot, who is Russian. Uh, this is the greatest crowd ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, fired by Trump. <laughs> you know, every, every once in a while, my parents are in the audience. They're not here today. And I like to say that and have people clap so my mother knows <laughs> that it's actually, it's actually can be cool to be fired. And it's, and it's not so awful. Um, Springsteen fan. And proud immigrant. So, so I, I, was, I was born not in this country. I was born in India, uh, in the northern part of the country, in the Punjab, to uh, a father who was one of 13 in his family, a mother who was one of eight in her family, and my father was the first person to go to college in his family, believed a lot in education and in working hard, and like so many immigrants, uh, brought me and my mother to this country, and then my brother was born. So if you ask the question, don't worry, I'm gonna speed this up. <laughs> and then I was born. <laughs> and then I nursed. <laughs> then there was formula, no. Um, and so we, so we came to the country, and for many years, my father tried to get my brother and me both to go to medical school, and we didn't. Uh, and you know, at a fairly early age, as I describe in the book, I was struck by issues of justice and struck by the idea of being a lawyer in the courtroom, not a lawyer in an office. And one thing led to another, and I went to law school. And in law school, I took a course on trial practice, and you get to do um, mock jury summations and openings and cross-examinations, I realized that's the kind of lawyer I wanted to be. And in particular, I wanted to be an assistant U.S. attorney to be a federal prosecutor because, as I say over and over again in the work, the mission of that place, as Jenny understands and was mentioning, we didn't always get it right, we weren't perfect, but the aspiration was to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons every day and only that. So I became an assistant U.S. attorney by working really hard and faking my way into it then went to work in the Senate for four and a half years on the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, and then had the great fortune of being nominated at the ripe old age of 40 to be the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, which is much in the news now, obviously, because they're overseeing the Michael Cohen case. Uh, and then I, I got fired. We can talk about why that was. I'm not quite sure. Uh, and so I had some free time on my hands. And so I do this podcast, uh, Stay Tuned with Preet, that you should listen to. Best crowd ever. Uh, and, then I, and then I wrote this book. Woo! <laughs> that may not have been the answer you're looking for, but 
I just like hearing them applaud. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a way, as you say, it was President Trump who uh, created the space, shall we say, for you to write this book. <laughs> that, is a, that is a way to put it. He created the space for Andy McCabe. He created the space for Jim Comey. He created the space for, yeah, all right. Right. And uh, President Trump is not mentioned very often in this book, but he sits very prominently in the background for the reader. You don't mention him, but as you're talking about all these lessons about how to keep the public trust, about how to behave honorably despite pressure, conduct fair investigations, exercise restraint, make hard decisions through a rational, deliberative process, the contrast is really clear. Well, it's a funny thing, right? Um, some reporter said to me that he was surprised that Donald Trump appears in the first paragraph just to I orient people by saying that I was fired by the president. And then the next time he appears is on page 188. And I said, that's earlier than I expected him to be appearing. And he's not mentioned in the book, but he looms everywhere in life. And the odd thing to me is when anybody sits around, uh, either in a public forum or privately, and starts talking about truth, or justice, or dignity, or decency, or equal treatment, people are like, wow, that's, that's totally a diss on Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the guy hasn't been mentioned. And I thought, you know what, uh, you don't always want to be engaging Donald Trump. There's Twitter for that, by the way. <laughs> but in, but you know, in, in doing sort of a longer study of what the state of our country is and maybe where we should go, I thought if you start to mention Trump by name, lots of people sort of uh, get up in arms, either in favor or against, and people stop listening a little bit because it becomes immediately polarized. And sometimes it's worth taking a step back, like I try to do in the book, to say, forget about Donald Trump. What is the right way to think about truth? What is the right way to think about fairness? What is the right way to think about uh, avoiding bias and, 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 and prejudice and all of those things, and then compare it to where we are. You know, someone, my editor once said to me, uh, he's like, you know, Donald Trump's name was never mentioned at John McCain's funeral, and yet he hung over the room because people were talking about certain virtues and values that seemed so absent. There was this great movie about Mr. Rogers. Did you guys see this? <laughs> Donald Trump is not mentioned in Mr. Rogers. Because <laughs> that, that would be weird. And yet, he hangs, he hangs over it. There's a section in the book that derives from a talk I once gave um, after Trump became the president to a, a graduating law school class where I talked about the ways in which people can learn how to disagree with each other and argue with each other. And the law may be in trials or maybe a model for that, where if you disagree, uh, you're allowed to do that. You're supposed to engage in the other side instead of you know, going to your own corner and sulking and not engaging in, in argument. But the way in which you make your points is it has to be done fairly and without prejudice and without fear and without lies and all of that. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if our public discourse mirrored a little bit the way lawyers do it in court? And people came up to me and they said, you know, that was a great indictment of Trump. <laughs> I, I had written that, a version of that speech five years ago when Obama was president. And I wasn't thinking about that. So it's odd now that, that these things have resonance because of the age in which we're living, I don't think that's a bad thing, but that's just how it is. 
You also write in the book briefly about Robert Mueller. And I, and I think everyone in the audience, want to hear from you about <laughs> Mueller's report, the Barr report. <laughs> however, however. Let me summarize. <laughs> just, just to make us uh, wait for it for a moment, and also to illustrate what I think is one of the great strengths of this book, this way in which you are reading case studies that are instructive in themselves, but also more broadly instructive. Let's talk about one of your case studies. This is uh, a case in New York that involved the Long Island Railroad and a uh, charge of, I think, potential conspiracy, something that was out in the public realm with a lot of public outrage and people clamoring for a prosecutor to come and do something about it. Look, so. So I have deep respect for Robert Mueller. I think he's one of the great American heroes of our time. And I worry that not everyone is clapping because some people are disappointed in what he did. Um, and I get that. One of the points I want to make in the book is we should all like, be thoughtful about uh, everything, but also about how cases are brought. And it's very easy when bad things happen and there's um, you know, bits of evidence that suggest, well, someone should go to jail. Uh, you can sort of clamor for that, but then maybe when more facts become known, you can understand a little bit better the full picture. And so repeatedly in the book, I try to make the point that, you know, once you know all of the things, maybe it's, maybe it's not so easy you can understand why a case wasn't able to be brought. And so in, in the Long Island Railroad case, an amazing case involving disability fraud, um, and it's one of the cases that had the most resonance for the public. You know, I, I would often be able to tell which cases really you know, grabbed people's attention when I would come into the office every morning and if the security guards, the, 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 the court security officers, if they would high five me <laughs> and they seemed proud to be working there and that I was the US attorney, that meant that some case had resonated. And I never got as many high fives as I got during the dependency of this case. And it was, the facts were that the New York Times had gone out and, and done this expose and all these people that Long Island Railroad sought early disability at the age of 50 and then got a, a special extra disability pension by claiming injuries like tissue damage and back pain and, uh, and inability to use their hands. And then in many instances, right after they claimed that and got the disability pension, they did things like play 100 rounds of golf, uh, you know, get a black belt in jujitsu, all sorts of examples. And the New York Times took video of that. And so you have those facts uh, and also the, the, the percentage I forgot what the number exactly was. Uh, the percentage of likelihood of getting your disability pension early was like 90% at the Long Island Railroad. To put that in perspective, there was another commuter railroad, uh, uh, Metro North in the New York area, where the percentage was something like 15%. So something clearly was amiss with the Long Island Railroad. And so you would think, well, let's lock everybody up right then. Not so easy, because you have to prove each individual case uh, was a lie and was a fraud. And you know, it turns out it's not so easy to prove that someone lied about having an arthritic condition or back pain or tissue damage because they very cleverly chose dis you know, ailments that, you, that there's no blood test for, there's no x-ray for. And then to the extent you think the doctors are the ones who are the bad guys, and we thought that they were, because the mass of those fraudulent claims were approved by, I think, two or three doctors. And they have a ready excuse also not, maybe not ultimately um, uh, 
will carry the day, but they had a ready excuse saying, well, we just based our decisions on the reporting of these people. And then third, one of those pieces of great evidence that you think would carry the day, that the difference in the percentage of people getting disability at the Long Island Railroad, where we think that there are three corrupt doctors versus the Metro North, that sounds great and very compelling when we're sitting up here on stage, but there was a real worry that as an evidentiary matter, a court might say that was not probative, that was not admissible because it was statistical evidence and you could see reasons why a judge might exclude it. So now all of a sudden you're left with not that great a case. So we pushed hard and we figured out a way to bring the case and you know, I, I hate to say this, but uh, the only reason we had the case was because the Eastern District of New York, the other U.S. Attorney's Office across the river, had the right of first refusal. They looked at the case and they saw the weaknesses and they didn't, they didn't pursue it. And I, didn't, I don't really fully blame them because it was a really hard case. My folks were a little bit more aggressive and figured uh, we would begin with a wave of arrests because we think there's enough circumstantial evidence and hopefully what will happen to be able to put it over the top is people will flip. And people talk about flipping, and we can talk about that. And that ended up happening, and then you got the better evidence. Then you got people who were saying, well, we knew it was a scam, and this is why it was happening. And we ended up charging, I think, 33 people and you know, revising the whole program. That was a long-winded story and a way of just saying, uh, it's not clear to me that the Eastern District did it wrong, and we were lucky to have done it right, but sometimes these decisions about who to charge and whether to charge are really fraught and really more difficult than a lot of people realize. And as we're hearing this, you can hear the parallel to what Mueller has done over the last two years, indicting people, trying to get people to flip, trying to build the case. And then uh, over the weekend, we learn that the report is in. And on Sunday, we learn uh, what Barr's report on the report says. <laughs> yeah. So first. <laughs> And, and let's just, uh, what do they say, stipulate that everything we know is from the Barr report, right? We, we, no one's read the Mueller report except Barr and Rosenstein. Yeah. Although Barr does quote not any full sentences, but some fragments, some of which I think he really couldn't get away with not quoting, because if they came out later, it would, have looked, it would have looked bad not to have mentioned them. But in this world where we're hearing Mueller's report through Barr, what do you make of Mueller's decision not to charge the president? Well, so put aside the collusion part, where it seems, you know, I, I respect and accept Bob Mueller's determination that there was not enough evidence to prove the commission of a crime of conspiracy in connection with hacking or campaign finance violation uh, related to the to interference in the election in 2016. I, don't, I would like to see all the facts. I would like to see the report. I bet there's some stuff that's not great. Um, there's a lot of other circumstantial evidence that the president engaged in, in quote unquote collusion, which is not conspiracy, by inviting, you know, hacking and, and doing all sorts of other things. But I, I accept, uh, as I said all along, as I would, the determination no crime can be proved with respect to quote unquote collusion. On the obstruction side, I, like everyone else, was kind of surprised because I, you know, I thought that the whole point of the special counsel was to have someone a little bit independent and that some remove from the Justice Department and some remove from you know, direct supervision of, of the president, uh, although he can ultimately be fired by the president, to make the, the decision and decide is there obstruction or not. So at first, uh, I was kind of mortified by that because I didn't get it. And then and again, this is all speculation. 
my thought is that maybe that was the right way to think about it, and he was right to punt, as people keep saying he did, because it's so fraught, it's such high stakes. Based on his analysis, it looks like it was a close question, and, and maybe his view was, which I think is not illegitimate, in such a circumstance, if you're gonna have people respect the ultimate uh, way in which you hold a president accountable for something, should it be left to me, Robert Mueller, who has become controversial because I've been attacked and because people care a lot one way or the other about the president staying or going. In these circumstances, with this level of evidence, maybe it's not for me. And the best thing I can do is lay it all out and say, here are all the reasons why, which it sounds like he did, here are all the reasons why you could see that the president may have committed the crime of obstruction. Here are the defenses. Here are the reasons why maybe it's a little bit ambiguous. But it's so close that I don't think anyone's going to buy it. I don't think the country will accept it if I do it. But you know what? That's okay because we have a system um, and it's in the Constitution of holding a president accountable through the Congress, whether by impeachment or something else. And so maybe that's the best way to go about it, he thought. Now, the, the problem with that is that, and we don't know, right? This is, this is a very frustrating exercise because <laughs> we don't have, we don't have the damn report. Um, it, it seems to me he did not make clear, like he could have said that in the report. I believe that had Bob Mueller decided that the reason I'm not gonna make a decision or make a determination is I think that should be left to Congress for all the reasons I, I, I cited, and then he could have said that in the report. I think it is best, given our constitutional system of checks and balances, that it, it is not I, but Congress can do what it will with this in a, in a properly redacted whatever version of this report. Because if he had said that, then I think Barr would have had no choice but to put that in his letter. Mm. And he didn't do that. And I'm still of the view, I think Bob Mueller is very smart, and you would think that he foresees lots of things, but I'm still of the view he didn't, that he basically left it to Congress. Um, the, the analogy I keep using, and people keep pointing out that it's not exactly the way how it works, that, that Bob Mueller punted intentionally to Congress, and off the bleachers comes Bill Barr, <laughs> grabs the football, runs it in for a touchdown for Trump. People keep telling me, well, that's not how a punt works. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah. Yeah, that makes it a better analogy. <laughs> so you know and worked with and maybe even supervised a number of the people who were on Mueller's team. Um, I've worked with a number of them, and I, and I supervised at least one who uh, is a great lawyer and was the head of my public corruption unit, yeah. So with this inside knowledge, how many pages? Knowledge. I know the people. Right. <laughs> How many pages is this report going to be, and when are we going to see it? I think it's 731 pages. Mm -hmm. Are they going to see it on April? No, I don't. My guess is it's, we were talking about this backstage, uh, Eli and I. I think it's a lengthy report for a couple of reasons. One, it's just the way Mueller folks are, and the evidence is the other submissions that have been made in connection with the cases he brought. And there was one, I forget which case it was, because they all blur together. Um, one of the sentencing memoranda was 25 pages, but there were like 300 pages of attachments. They're rigorous and thorough, and if they did the work, they might as well document it. And in particular, there was no skin off their back because Mueller, in some ways, had the luxury of being able to put anything he wanted in the report, 
because he was not, he's not the person responsible for deciding what to disclose. If he had known that his report was automatically going to become public, then maybe he could have you know, exercised some restraint or been more streamlined. But for him, you know, history will judge how thorough he was and the team was. And so why not put everything in? I find it interesting that among uh, the things that we don't know, and it wouldn't violate any rule of classification or confidential information or grand jury secrecy rules, we don't know how many pages the report is, which is, why you, which is presumably why you asked the question. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we, we don't know. It's know. comprehensive. It's comprehensive. I, I would like to know how long it is. So as to your question, when will we see? You know, I don't know. I initially thought that if the report was you know, overall generally favorable to the president, and by that I mean favorable as to some things and as to other things maybe not, but the president has a really good uh, way of sort of saying everything exonerates him. You know, you know, right. The proceeding said there was no collusion. No, the proceeding had nothing to do with the collusion. There also, there was, and he will just say about the proceeding there was no collusion. And so I often say that there are also no donuts. But <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, neither, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but now I think, so, so I thought if it was favorable, they would run to the Congress and say, look, it's pretty good. It seems to me that, that, that Bill Barr, if I can say it this way, not necessarily as a pejorative, but maybe, he was more clever than that. He said, well, in his defense, imagine the report gets delivered as it was at 5 o'clock on a Friday. And then Bill Barr decides, well, the next communication uh, and bit of transparency, uh, transparency I'm going to engage in will be in like two and a half weeks when we finally figure out how to redact the report properly, if you believe that's okay. I mean, people would have had uh, you know, heart attacks even more than they're having now. He couldn't have gone silent for two and a half weeks. So he, he had to say something, and he had to provide something. So I don't think it's crazy and illegitimate that he said, um, and it's good, we got information. But now, in retrospect, seeing that he's done that, it puts a pause button on the release of the whole report. And this sort of streamlined kind of you know, spun summary, which I think is spun in some ways, is now the greatest thing in the world for them. So why rush mm -hmm. to put out the full report, which probably has uh, you know, overall good for him on, on collusion, mixed bag on obstruction. He's got the nice letter where they say you know, obstruction doesn't apply. Let that sit and be imprinted in the minds of the public. And then many weeks later, when the full business comes out, it's old news. I mean, in some ways, you know, old news is even better than fake news. And people won't care as much because it's baked in. So that's, that's a worry I have. I want to read you something you wrote in the book, which I think is being borne out right now. You say, if Robert Mueller and others decide not to charge or decline to make a referral on President Trump, it will be very difficult to show the purity of that decision. And you are uh, using this as an example of how hard it can be to explain a decision not to charge after an investigation, particularly one of great public interest yeah. where some facts are out there. And one that you bring up and that President Trump brings up and uh, a lot of people bring up is James Comey's decision to try to explain his decision not to charge Hillary Clinton just before the yeah. election. What did you make of how Comey behaved in that instance? So just take a step back and, and talk about the principle of the matter. And we've, we've been talking about it. So you know, part of the reason I hope you read and enjoy the book is even though a lot of the stories have not, are not directly on point with what's happening today, so many things that are happening today 
are discussed through other examples in the book, like what flipping a witness means, how that operates, and also here, how to explain a decision not to charge. When a prosecutor decides we are going to charge uh, Joe uh, Smith, lots of things happen, right? A lawyer gets assigned to Joe Smith under the Constitution. There's a public trial. There's a judge. Uh, reporters are allowed to come in. You have a basis to evaluate whether or not the charges were overly harsh, overly light, what the, uh, the judge did, the credibility of the witnesses. It's all in the open, and you can judge the decision to act. Now let's say it becomes known that Joe Smith was under investigation and the prosecutor decides not to charge. Well, that's very hard to judge that decision. And in this sort of the same way, it's a little bit difficult in life to judge any decision not to do something. You decide to marry someone who's like, well, that was a mistake. You shouldn't have married that person. Um, a little bit harder to judge where in your life you would be if uh, you know, the, the decision not to marry someone or not to take a particular job or not to go to a particular school or not to take a particular path in your life or in your career. I mean, a little bit, because if the person you decide not to marry becomes an axe murderer, then you're, you, know, you think, well, maybe that was a good decision. But generally, <laughs> but generally speaking, but maybe if they married you, they wouldn't have been an axe murderer. Maybe you would have changed them. <laughs> so it's really, it's really unknowable in many respects. And so, so that's, that uncertainty, which is true of, of commission omission generally, is doubly true in prosecutorial decisions. The added problem is, even if you thought there's a way to, to explain to the public why we didn't charge Joe Smith in this particular case, to do that lands you in a lot of trouble because there's also a principle of fairness and a policy, you know, in a general practice in the Justice Department that, so poor Joe, Shmo, uh, Joe Smith, you decided not to charge. Joe Schmo, you always charge. <laughs> Just to make a distinction. So you're all like, what? It's Joe Smith. Keep your analogy straight. It's a very tough audience. Um, so, let, so let's say you decide not to charge Joe Smith and everyone is anticipating it and then, and they're all, and they're criticizing you and they're saying, well obviously Preet's bought out or Jim Comey is bought out or the FBI is corrupt and it must be because Joe Smith is connected and his father was so and so and that rankles you and that makes you upset because you, you know, and this is the, by analogy what I think was going through Jim Comey's head, you know that the decision was right and just and made on principle and you can disagree with it but it was not a corrupt decision. And so there's a strong temptation to say, listen, and I felt that temptation too, listen. I understand Joe Smith did a lot of terrible things and I know you know about them. He did this thing and that thing and it was a report about this and the other, but we are not gonna charge him because the law says X or the law says Y. And there are other people who are similarly situated uh, like Joe Smith and they've never been charged either. And I know you think he's a bad person and you don't like his politics, but we're not gonna charge him even though he did all these bad things. And that's, a, that's an itch that sometimes prosecutors want to scratch and that Jim Comey did. And I actually think it came from a good faith position of wanting to defend his institution against criticism and accusation that he thought was unfair and probably was unfair. The problem is that causes a heap of trouble because then it causes you to have to then talk more and correct more and it violates the principle of you know, putting out derogatory information about somebody who then now doesn't have the, the full ability to defend himself or herself at a trial like you normally would have if there had been an accusation. So that's the predicament he was in. I think ultimately there's no great decision. I mean, he has said with respect to that and also the letter that there was door number one and door number And by the way, I should say, you know, clearly uh, 
I admire Jim Comey. Jim Comey's a friend of mine. I worked for him when he was the U.S. attorney. I think he tells the truth. But like all people, in a highly fraught situation, you can disagree with their decisions, and I disagree with that decision. And this is the decision to send a letter later. Um, but so you have the same, a little bit the same issue here. What is the explanation that's allowable and permissible so you don't slander people? Now, I think the difference, the most important difference is we're now talking about the President of the United States, mm -hmm. who has the immunity of essentially a decision and a policy in the Justice Department that says you cannot charge a sitting president. That, I think that changes the circumstance. And second, and he's the only person on Earth or on, in the country, because Netanyahu doesn't have, doesn't have that, so Earth is too broad, <laughs> in the country who has the benefit of that protection. And he also, you know, it's not, he's not the only person, but one of the only people in the country who can be impeached. So there are other methods of accountability. So, so I don't think this issue of, you know, a decision not to charge, what can be said about Joe, uh, what's it, is it Schmo or Smith? Smith, thank Schmo. you. So good, paying attention. I knew that. It's different from the President of the United States for those reasons. You were talking about how tempting it is for a prosecutor to explain a decline decision, particularly when uh, they're getting a lot of criticism over it. So I want to see if I can tempt you here. You were uh, appointed the prosecutor in the Southern District of New York by President Barack Obama in 2009, the year after the financial crisis. No Wall Street executive went to jail for their conduct during the financial crisis. You were in charge of prosecuting Wall Street. Can you explain to us today why that happened? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question, and I get it from time to time. <laughs> for 10 years. Um, I will draw a distinction between the uh, having to explain why a particular person in a particular case wasn't charged and how difficult it would be to violate all sorts of rules to explain, look, on Lehman Brothers, take the files, knock yourself out, and, and tell me what case you would have brought. Um, that's an easier question to answer in some ways, although not allowable, than the broad question of in, in this entire gigantic scenario, the financial crisis, why did no chief executive of a financial institution go to prison? And so. The important thing, I think, at the outset to say is that it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating not only to the general public, but also the people, and not just my office. You know, there are dozens of offices who were charged with and assigned different cases relating to the financial crisis, not just mine. And those assignments happened before I became U.S. Attorney. But the personal incentive for people who are FBI agents or line prosecutors in my office and many other offices was to try to hold people accountable if you could because they're citizens of the United States too. They had 401k plans too. Uh, they suffered in the financial crisis just as much as, and in some cases more than, anyone else. And I talk about this in the book, so at greater length, so you can read it and, and you can be persuaded or not persuaded. It's not enough to be angry. It's not enough to say people engaged in recklessness or greed or uh, negligence or bad conduct that's not crossing a particular line, and not enough if you don't have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that a particular person did a particular thing with knowledge and intent that caused the harm. And so I give a couple of examples in the book uh, just so you have a sense of the ways in which some people escaped liability. You know, lots and lots of folks who unloaded junk, uh, securitized uh, financial products on other sophisticated financial 
institutions had the benefit of third parties blessing them. You would have lawyers who would sometimes sign off and say, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to disclose any more than you've disclosed. It's not misleading. Or accountants who said, this transaction is okay. Now, that may look fishy to a lot of people later, and it did to us in some instances in other offices, but in our system, if you're gonna prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and that person can say, and, and you don't have proof that they were in cahoots and it was a fraud, that person can say, look, we had an outside lawyer, an outside accountant, and that person said that this thing was okay. And what we said about it, and what we disclosed about it, was okay. And it can be upsetting, because some of it I think was BS, but you're not gonna convict somebody if they have the benefit of that shield. And that happened all the time. And you know, the next question often comes, uh, the other thing I should say about that is, uh, there was no failure of will, there was no failure of expertise, there was no failure of, uh, of hard work. People in my office worked around the clock on those kinds of cases, just like they did on other cases. And I'm not aware, unless it was the, the, the greatest conspiracy in the history of the world, literally, hundreds and hundreds of agents, analysts, investigators, prosecutors, not only did they, to my knowledge, never say we can build a case, a criminal case, against a top executive, you know, a leading executive at a financial institution, no regulatory agency, to my knowledge, brought a civil action, which is a much easier thing to do, by the way, preponderance of the evidence, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, a civil action against the head of a financial institution, which leads to the conclusion that some things were maybe hidden and people had these, these ways to get plausible deniability. And in other instances, uh, you know, it was greed, bad conduct, but didn't rise to the level of criminality. The next question people often ask, so I'm gonna anticipate, is you know, <laughs> what should we change? And it's a good question. And you can tweak you know, uh, devices for getting information and investigative tools, but overall, the way you might have gotten some of these people within the ambit of law enforcement and sent them to prison is if you lowered the standard of proof and or you lowered uh, the, the mental state. And so if bad things happen in a company, perhaps you don't need to prove that the CEO had knowledge. You just have to prove they should have known uh, and, and have a form of strict liability. And you could do that. We would prosecute it and a lot of people would go to prison. But, but the, my worry is always, when you have things like this and people who did terrible things escape criminal liability, but not only criminal liability, they escape, a, they escape all sorts of other punishment too, including financial punishment in the marketplace. And that's another reason why people are and should be angry, not in the ambit of prosecutors. But you always need to be a little careful if you decide we're gonna make it a little easier to put a certain kind of person in prison and not have to show that they had intent because then that can be used to put a lot of other people in prison too, that's all. And I read that point in the book, and I, I thought, well, we see over and over again these examples of powerful, wealthy Americans getting a different kind of justice because they can afford a lawyer to sign off on the things so they get future plausible deniability and so on. And I wondered, well, that makes sense. We all want to be held to an equal standard. We don't want you know, the average person to start having a, a lower standard. But what about uh, the idea that people who sit in the Oval Office or in uh, the corner offices of these hedge funds should be held to a higher standard? That in a way, we should have rules and laws that do make it easier to prosecute them when they do harm because the harm is so vast. Yeah, 
Look, I think people in high positions of power, and we prosecuted more public corruption cases than anyone in New York did in many generations, if not ever, in part because we thought they should be held to a higher standard and you investigate them harder. And so if a police officer, and we prosecuted a number of them, engages in a transgression that maybe some ordinary person engaged in where they would get a little bit of a pass, the police officer maybe shouldn't because they have so much power and they have so much authority over, over other people. So I'm not, I'm not against that. Uh, let's talk about the flip side. Going really hard against a suspect in a really important case, and uh, it turns out that this was an error. So I'm talking about the case that you illuminate in this book of Brandon Mayfield, who yeah. lived in Portland, if that name sounds familiar to anyone here, in 2004, he became the chief suspect, or one of the chief suspects, in an international terrorism case. Yeah, so part of the point of the book is to tell stories of success, where people in my office exonerated folks who were charged uh, by other offices unjustly, uh, and then also to tell stories of, that's actually not a success story, it's a later success story, but also tell cautionary tales, and this was a case that wasn't done by my office, although. It was, for a brief period of time, it almost was my case, so I sort of you know, skirted uh, a disaster. So people learn how to make sure that they think about doing things the right way. And sometimes stories are better than sort of lessons and, and checklists and investigations. And so, uh, as Eli mentioned, in, in March of 2004, terrorists blew up a bunch of trains in Madrid, Spain, and 191 people lost their lives. And the Spanish National Police, uh, you know, started to investigate and they found a bag of, a blue bag of detonators and on the bag they recovered some fingerprints and they couldn't find a match for one of the fingerprints, sent it to the best law enforcement agency in the world, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, goes to Quantico, they examine the fingerprint and the first examiner finds a match to this white guy, uh, young white guy living in Portland, Oregon. Second fingerprint examiner confirms the first match, third fingerprint examiner confirms what the first two print examiners uh, concluded. And at the time that they do that, they don't know who this person is, but there's a match in the system. And they all say, well, here's the match. And after they do the match, they start to learn more information about Brandon Mayfield. And the first thing they think is, well, why, what's up with this, this white dude named Brian, uh, Brandon Mayfield in Portland? What does he have to do with this terrorist uh, attack in Madrid? And they learn a few things. Now, Brandon Mayfield had converted to Islam. Oh, that makes sense. Brandon Mayfield had married an Egyptian woman, I believe, who was a Muslim. Oh, that makes sense too. Third, Brandon Mayfield, who was a lawyer in Portland, had represented in a child custody matter a, a, a man who had been charged with, I think convicted of, material support of Al-Qaeda. Oh, well obviously we have our guy, because we have the fingerprint match, and it seems strange, because it's Brandon Mayfield, uh, he's not shake, whatever. And so it must be the guy. It wasn't the guy. They got it wrong. And, you know, the FBI did, and so after a period of time, they brought him into custody. They could never find any other evidence. They never actually arrested him on the, count, on the, on the charges or charged him with terrorism. They brought him to custody on something known as a material witness warrant. And the reason they never arrested him was they couldn't find any connectivity between him and any terrorists. They couldn't find any phone calls. They had FISA warrants on his apartment. They searched his apartment. They went through his kids' homework. Um, they couldn't find uh, 
any travel that he had done, he had been, dis he had been honorably discharged from the military. And then at the end of the day, the Spanish National Police had a dispute about the match. They kept thinking something was wrong. The FBI, the Americans, maybe as a point of sort of national pride uh, and arrogance about their own abilities, kept saying, we have it right, we have it right. And the Spanish National Police finally found another person named Daoud to whom the fingerprint that was lifted matched. And once they found that, the Americans realized, the FBI realized, oh yeah, that's a better match than our guy. <laughs> that's an error. And they released him from custody. They paid him $2 million and they issued an apology, which is very rare for a federal law enforcement agency. And the point is, and as the Inspector General did a follow-on report, said, you know, and this is important because everyone always talks about the, the, the obvious racist or the obvious clumsy person or the incompetent person. These were competent people who acted mostly in good faith, but they vary a little bit from the best practices and, and being perfectionists. In the first instance, there was no anti-Islamic tendency because they didn't know who the person was. But there was, a, there was an element of confirmation bias. And once they saw that these other things fell into place and fit a narrative, the Inspector General you know, observed, they never went back and re-examined their first views. And sometimes, as I point out over and over again in the book, sometimes that's the thing. It's multiple people who deviate a little bit from best practice uh, over time cause the greatest miscarriages of justice. Not just the person who's a blatant, racist, horrible person, but people acting in good faith who just fall a little bit short on the job. And that's an important lesson, not just for lawyers and prosecutors and investigators, but for everyone. One of the most interesting to me and morally complex chapters in your book is the one about snitches, or as the president calls them, rats. And you had a really simple illustration of our just instinctual fascination with and revulsion to <laughs> snitches, and it involves your children. Um, I'm, I'm totally exploiting my children. So I, I start the chapter by just sort of making the point that you know, there's, a, there's a lot of human reaction to the way we do some things in law enforcement, and it's natural. Uh, it's the bread and butter of law enforcement, particularly getting mob convictions. You use one person to flip against another person, but there's a reason why we feel uneasy about it, and the, and the story I tell is when my daughter was six, I think, and my, one of my sons was four, she busts into the, they were playing outside, and she busts into the house, and she comes into the kitchen, and her arms are crossed, and my son is crying. He's clearly committed some felony <laughs> in the yard uh, that, that she believes should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And he's crying, and she's intent on telling us what happened. And we stop them for a second, uh, my daughter Maya, my son Jaden, and my wife and I in the kitchen, and we said, wait a minute, let's ask a couple of questions. Is everyone okay? And Maya says, yes. And we look at Jay and we're like, are you, are you sorry for whatever you did? And he said, yes. And we determined that everything was fine. He clearly was repentant. Uh, and we said, we don't want to hear it. <laughs> we don't want to know. And my daughter right then lost all respect for me and my wife. <laughs> so I'm... And she's, to this day, she's probably surprised I later became the U.S. attorney because clearly I'm a criminal <laughs> who, who would excuse criminality. 
But the point, but everyone, you, you all have stories like that. You know, there's something about the tattletale that, that doesn't sit well with us, and yet it is, a, it is an incredibly central tool in prosecution. One of the stories I tell that's very different from, my, from the story of my daughter and my son is there was a, we, we prosecuted a lot of insider trading cases when I was a U.S. attorney, and one person who we thought to prosecute was a guy named Noah Freeman who had been in a, uh, at a hedge fund and engaged in insider trading, and the agents built up a strong case against him. And they approached him in the parking lot of the, of the he had left the hedge fund industry, it was too much for him, and he was working at an all-girls school as a teacher, and he flipped. And not only did he flip in the way that some people flip, you know, they had charged and then they agreed to testify against a former compatriot, he decided to keep secret the fact that he was cooperating and to cooperate going forward secretly, meaning he was prepared to wear a wire. People do that, and you love that. That's like the holy grail of cooperation for a prosecutor. <laughs> he agreed to wear a wire against his best friend. Not only his best friend, the man who had been his best man, and the man for whom he was going to be best man. And he, see? <laughs> Thank you. You have good moral compasses. <laughs> and the weird thing about it that I discuss in the chapter is, you know, the prosecutors who worked on that case had seen everything. Uh, one had been a gang prosecutor before doing white collar work, and then the other had been a, a mob prosecutor. And they had prosecuted cases where people, you know, attacked cooperating, you know, attacked you know, informants who had killed people, racketeering enterprises. They were more shocked at this guy who was prepared to wear a wire against his best man than they were at some of the crimes, which shows you the kind of you know, innate discomfort we have with this idea of cooperation. And so there's stories like that. There's also the people who never open their mouths ever. And so cases can't be brought. And you know, the human element of who will cooperate, who won't, how you persuade people who you don't, um, is sort of interesting. I, I tell the story, I'll stop in a minute. I, 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 tell, uh, I, I tell the story of one of my favorite uh, detectives I used to work with, Kenny Robbins. And everyone had a different method, right, of trying to get someone to see, uh, see the light and decide to help law enforcement. He said, I would bring a guy in who's a narcotics detective, largely. He said, I'd bring a guy in, if I could find a picture of his family, uh, you know, or a member of his family, I would come in, I would, and I would never yell. And most good detectives and agents, they don't yell, they don't threaten, they just tell you the facts. That's how it works. Not in the movies that way, but in real life it's that way. And he'd come in, he'd put a picture of the family, uh, and let them contemplate it, leave, and come back again, and say, like, you know, so I understand you want to be a man. And you can be a man and not say anything about this guy and that guy and that guy who got you here, or you could be a man and you could be there for your daughter's graduation. You could be there for your son's wedding. You could be there when your father, you know, retires. You could be there for the funeral of your grandfather. That's the kind of man you could be, and then he would leave again. And that was the most compelling way he got people to think about sort of inverting what their view of masculinity was or manlyhood was, and it was very persuasive. You also write in the book, and I really uh, recommend this part of the book uh, as it pertains to snitches, about how you were able to expose and ultimately prosecute corruption in Albany uh, because of a political snitch. And uh, this, this political snitch was an assemblyman uh, he was giving you information on not only his corruption, but other corruption. And during this time, he stood for election. And uh, you 
go into a very interesting story of uh, how you process that. Were you essentially participating in a fraud on the public by allowing this criminal to stand for elected election and ultimately be reelected, or were you protecting the public? Yeah, there are a lot of close questions. Now I know how Mueller feels. <laughs> um, yeah, so the other, it's a story of, you know, wanting to get the bad guys, right? So, you know, all of, all of cooperation, that technique, is a, is a utilitarian approach to public safety and to law enforcement. And, you know, the principle being, is it okay to give this person lenience and give this person some benefit so that I can get the three other worst people? And we've decided, and you, you, you can't do it in every jurisdiction in the world. In some places, it's not allowed. We've decided in this country, it makes sense. But when you do that on this sort of unseemly, you go down this unseemly path, then there are particular circumstances in which, you know, you have to worry more than other times. Because uh, in lots of areas of law enforcement, you're allowed to engage in subterfuge, and you're allowed to engage in dishonesty, and sting operations are that way too. And so the example you mentioned, you know, was a conundrum for us. Public corruption was a huge problem in New York. Um, you know, there was a period of time when you were more likely to be uh, driven from office by indictment than by defeat at the polls. There was the famous case of, of the, the, the chief counsel or the general counsel to, I think it was the, uh, the state senate leader a couple years before I came into office, but it rang in the ears of everybody because it, it, you know, it spoke to the culture of Albany where the, the instruction to the other members of the state senate were, when you, when you complete your financial disclosure documents that are required, you should hand walk them to the person you're supposed to deliver them to, the ethics office, not mail them, so you are more likely to avoid a federal mail fraud charge. <laughs> that was the advice. So just to give you a sense of what we were, yeah, right? To give you a sense of what we're dealing with. So we were very aggressive on, on public corruption in that environment. And so, you know, out of the blue, for reasons I'll, I'll, I'll shortcut it, you know, we, we had the benefit of a cooperator who was a sitting state assemblyman who decided to, you know, do among other things, wire up and, and cooperate in various ways. We were not done with his cooperation. And he was, he, he, he led us into a group of, uh, of Russian fraudsters who were trying to subvert the democratic process in various ways and another assemblyman, and we're coming up on the eve of the election, and we weren't done. And so the, the quandary was, and there's lots of quandaries. You'll like the quandaries. And the issue was, do we you know, stop the, you know, the program and let everyone know he, he had pled guilty and he was a cooperating witness, and then give up any chance of getting these five other you know, bad guys, or do we continue it? And we chose to continue it because, in our view, the public corruption problem was really severe. Uh, but we, we have essentially let a guy get elected who we knew to be a criminal and in some ways, you know, was not a proper representative of that district. And to this day, I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not. And I think it's legitimate criticism to say you shouldn't have let that happen. And I think it would have been worse criticism had we not ultimately made the case and arrested, I think, four or five other people and brought them accountability. It justifies a little bit more. But, you know, at the time, you don't know for a fact that that's going to happen. Um, you, you know, we thought it was a strong case eventually, but I think there would have been much more hell to pay had we let him get reelected on a fraud sort of and nothing else to show for it. Um, and I think there would have been less criticism if we had a lot more to show for it. But these are the kinds of, these are the kinds of fascinating decisions that you will read about. <laughs>
and doing justice. Before we open it up for questions, uh, I want to go back to a case that you briefly alluded to earlier, a case that uh, turned out well, but in the very long run. And uh, this is the case of Eric Glisson and the investigation of a really dedicated prosecutor named John O'Malley. Yeah, so, I, I, yeah, I mentioned it earlier. It's very important to have good people. I mean, so the central premise of the whole book, which I really haven't gotten to yet, is the idea that laws are important and you can have perfect laws, so to speak, and perfect statutes and perfect regulations. That's not gonna get you justice. We are a nation of laws, not men. That's important and we say that all the time, but that doesn't get us all the way to, to justice because you can have great laws and if the people responsible for interpreting them and enforcing them and talking about changing them, if they're dishonorable or dishonest or corrupt or deviate from norms, like I said in the, in the case of Brandon Mayfield, then you're gonna get a lot of miscarriages of justice. And I, I opened the book with an anecdote about the most famous criminal defense lawyer of all time, Clarence Darrow, who was representing an individual like he often did, who was being charged with a capital crime. In this case, it was a, an African-American young man who was defending his home outside of, uh, in the suburb of Detroit in the 1920s when an angry white mob descended upon the home and he in defense of his brother's house, Dr. Austin Sweet, fired a shot, killed a white man on trial for his life. And Clarence Darrow made the point that has animated my thinking about these things and animates the book. Uh, and I know about it because when I was in high school I was terrible at sports so I did public speaking competitions. <laughs> and, I, and I memorized this speech. It's sort of, as I say in the book, it's sort of the, the nerd version of covering a song to give someone else's speech. You don't have to laugh that hard. <laughs> and he makes the point about the plight of African Americans in the country. At the time, this is the 1920s. So you know, the law has made him equal, but man has not. And the last analysis is, what has man done? Not what has the law done? And then in the, in the most inspiring portion of the summation, which I used to repeat to my office when I had the chance, he would say this, you know, no matter what laws we pass, no matter what precautions we take, unless the people we meet are kindly and decent and human and liberty-loving, then there is no liberty. Freedom comes from human beings rather than from laws and institutions. And I think that's very important that we lose sight of that. You know, when people are, are decrying the state of affairs today, they're not de decrying the state of the law so much. Uh, you know, two years has gone by, the Constitution is the same. I don't believe there's been an amendment. Uh, most of Title 18, which is the criminal code, remains the same. Most of the regulations remain the same. Most of the ethical principles and guidelines remain the same. What's different is you have people who are going about it the wrong way, who are using the oceans of discretion to do bad things. You know, the law with respect to immigration, although that has attempted to be changed, but a lot of what's going on at the border when you talk about the, the, the separations, that was not a change of law. That was a change in how people decided to apply the law and interpret the law and enforce the law. And so that's a general backdrop to the question you asked, which is you need good people. And I was blessed to work with some of the most amazing people who cared about you know, simple, old-fashioned, corny things like duty and mission and doing the right thing. And not to spoil the story, but to give you an inkling of it, John O'Malley was a longtime cop and then became an investigator in my office. And you, you know, people think of cops and investigators as, all they care about is putting people in jail, and that's not the job. The job is to do the right thing. And this, 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 this man named Eric Lisson sent a letter one day 
that made its way to John O'Malley's desk. And in the letter, he said something that was not such an uncommon claim on the part of someone who was in prison in, uh, at Sing Sing. He said, I'm in jail for a crime I did not commit. A lot of people say that. John O'Malley read the letter, and something in the letter reminded him of a confession he'd heard from two other guys from some years earlier. And he realized this guy had been convicted of a crime that he thought he had gotten the confession from, the confession about from other, from other folks. And rather than put it away, you know, the guy who wrote the letter had been convicted, had a lawyer, um, had an appeal, and had been in jail for 17 years. Presumably, he had his shot at justice. And O'Malley had other regular things to do in his job. He's a very busy guy. He decided to investigate it further on his own accord. He went and visited the two guys who made the confession before who were still in prison, confirmed his recollection of things. He read the trial transcript and ultimately did a lot of other things and then went to visit Eric Lisson in prison and said, and Eric Lisson shows up and the first thing he says is, who the F are you? And John O'Malley says, I'm from the Southern District of New York and did you write this letter? And he holds up the letter and Eric Lisson falls to the ground and starts crying. And John O'Malley says, you know, I believe you and we're gonna get you out of here. And then he did. And that's the kind of story that I think people should hear more about, particularly when uh, they happen in prosecutor's offices. I could keep going with my questions. Like I said, this is a really, really provocative and fascinating book. But I would imagine people in the audience have questions. So uh, make yourself known if you do. Right there. Sure, and you want me to talk smack about it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard, we, we don't have a microphone. Okay, so I recently heard about a case uh, um, up in the Supreme Court where they heard, um, heard it a couple days ago, and it, the decision's gonna come out in July. It's, it's a bat, Batson, mm -hmm. it's about um, discrimination against um, jurors, and that, that in and of itself is sort of an interesting case, but the individual who's up in, for, in, that the case is about has been on trial six times over the course of 23 years, and been held for 23 years, and I was curious how, this happens in Mississippi, I guess, how a DA can hold an individual for 23 years under six trials when five of them, like just the most recent one, found him guilty. I was just curious how that happened. Yeah, so that doesn't sound right and fair and just to me. I, I will confess that I don't follow every case, uh, and I don't, I don't know all the details. You know, Batson has to do with the issue of you know, challenging who can sit on the jury, and if you have um, an improper basis for striking someone from the jury, including race uh, and other protected class bases, then that's a violation of law and a violation of the constitutional rights of the defendant. So, so I, forgive me that I, I don't know the circumstances of that, um, so I can't really speak to it. Other questions? And looks like there's a microphone there. And do we have a microphone on the other side? We do. So please find a mic uh, and go ahead. Hi. Um did you say earlier you didn't know why Trump fired you? And if so, can you say more about that? 
I don't, I don't know for a fact why he fired me. No, he, he didn't have to keep me. People often keep asking me, you know, are you upset? I had the best job on the face of the earth at age 40 for seven and a half years. That's longer, that's longer than Rudy did the job for six and a half years. Um, and by the way, in 30 years, if I start talking like him, please, please make me stop. <laughs> You know, he, he, he invited me into the, into the Trump Tower lair <laughs> on November 30th of 2016. Some of you may know this. Uh, on November 30th of 2016, I went up in Trump Tower and I met with him. And before I met with him, I met with, let me see if you guys react the same way the San Francisco crowd reacted. So, so before he came in, because he was running late, I, um, I was entertained by Jared Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, San Francisco, San Francisco might have reacted more strongly. Than, uh, and also Steve Bannon. <laughs> this is too easy. Uh, and, and, we, and we had, look, we, and we had a meeting that was, that was very friendly, where the president-elect asked me to stay on. I didn't know why. Uh, I, I presumed it was because the office did a really good job. He had read about the office. I made clear that we, you know, we are apolitical. We go after whoever we think is, needs to be held accountable. And he asked me to stay. And the weird thing that he did in connection with that meeting, as some of you may know, he, he pushed a, a, a post-it pad across the desk and asked me for my phone numbers. So that was very odd because obviously someone must have had my phone number because that's how I got there. <laughs> you know, ar arrangements had been made through the phone. And then we ended the meeting, and he, and he told me to go down and tell the assorted press that, um, that he had asked me to stay for another term, and I, and I said that I would, because uh, I love that office. And I, I felt it was an independent office, and I didn't really have to worry about the president bothering me, because you know, somebody once asked me, what was your favorite moment of working when uh, President Obama was in the White House? And I said, I said it, it was the moment that President Obama didn't call me. <laughs> which was actually all the moments. <laughs> uh, and then followed you know, a couple of phone calls from the president-elect, which were very peculiar and odd, although not anything inappropriate said. And then he called me on, on March 9th of 2017, while he is the president. This is before I knew how much executive time he had. <laughs> and, I made the, and I made the decision in consultation with my deputy and also in consultation with Jeff Sessions' chief of staff that not knowing what the call was about, given swirling demands that certain aspects of Donald Trump's uh, conduct and businesses and foundation be investigated, and given our jurisdiction over those things, and given you know, the controversy that he stoked himself with respect to that tarmac visit between Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton while Hillary Clinton was under investigation, I probably shouldn't talk to him you know, offline without the Attorney General or someone else. And so I called the White House Secretary back and said, I'm not trying to be difficult, and I mean no offense, but I, I don't think it's appropriate for me to speak with President Trump at this time. And then 22 hours later, I was asked to resign, uh, and then the, and I refused. Uh, and then the next day, I was fired. So, <laughs> you guys, you guys love to clap for someone getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so, so I, I don't know if those things were connected. I think they, it's hard to believe they weren't connected because 45 other people got uh, you know, blue slips on the Friday also. Um, and it may be that he got upset. The other thing that happened, my understanding is that Thursday evening was on, on Fox News, President Hannity um, <laughs> stated that you know, he, he was in his big you know, thing about the deep state and said you know, all, the, all the attorneys who were appointed by Barack Obama should go. Maybe Steve Miller like, had a bad burrito. Like, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but, but the fact remains that uh, you know, even if it's the case that my failing to return the president's call caused me to lose the best job I will ever have, I'm more proud of that decision than I ever had been before. And just quickly, one thing that I've never seen explained, were you at the time he called working on anything that he might be well, very, Well, I don't answer that question. <laughs> All right. Over here. Hi, Preet. My question is, now that Robert Mueller is retired, um, when can he write a book? When can he talk about what happened and what are his limitations outside of personal choice? That's a great question. I, you know, my guess is he will not write a book. I would be shocked if he wrote a book. There are various examples of incidents that he has been involved with that other people have talked about that are very sensational including, you may, you may know this about the infamous hospital visit when Alberto Gonzalez and Andy Card rushed to the hospital, uh, bypassing Jim Comey, who was the acting attorney general on an issue of the terrorist surveillance program. This was in March of 2004. In fact, the night before the Madrid bombings, uh, and, and Jim Comey wanted to make sure that John Ashcroft's will wasn't overborne, and both Comey and, and Mueller raced to the hospital, and it was a standoff there, and it was very dramatic, and it was the subject of testimony in a hearing that I helped arrange when I was in the Senate. Jim Comey has talked about that. Bob Mueller never has. So I don't think he will. But you know, other people on the special counsel's team might write a book. Uh, I think they're free to write whatever they want, so long as they're careful about classified information um, and about other sensitive information. So uh, they have a process that, at the department, not to be too technical, where you clear your book and you have an obligation not to reveal things that you're not supposed to reveal of a classified nature. Um, my book didn't have any of that, but I went through that process anyway. It's a fairly apolitical process, and the fact that you know, Jim Comey was able to write his book, Andy McCabe said a lot of things, a lot of criticism of a lot of folks. He wrote his book in half the time I did, and it got cleared through the department. So they have a process for clearing those things. He would just have to be careful not to reveal things that are, that are classified, and beyond that, and make sure he doesn't you know, for his own you know, personal uh, protection, not slander anyone, but otherwise he's free to write a book, yeah. Thank Question you. over here. So, Mr. Barrara, if you hadn't been fired, do you think you would have been the first U.S. attorney to indict a sitting president? Wait, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the... <laughs> Jenny Durkin, running for re-election. <laughs> there you go. You have my vote. <laughs> I don't, look, this is gonna be an unpopular answer, but it's the truthful answer. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I think Mueller maybe acted like he did 
you can have a disagreement with the, with the DOJ policy and say it doesn't really derive from the Constitution, that policy being that you cannot prosecute and indict a sitting president. There's a lot of reasons why you might think that's nonsense and BS, and I tend to think it's not a great policy. And I made a reference already, Israel doesn't have that policy, because um, no one should be above the law. But it is the policy, and when you're talking about um, something as fraught and high stakes and nation dividing, whether you like the president or not, and most of you don't, so that's why it's a, almost a more important point to make in this crowd. When you're gonna do something like that, uh, maybe it's necessary, and it's a difficult thing to do, but you really wanna do it with the maximum legal authority on your side. And for a guy like, so, so it almost doesn't matter to me whether it's the right policy or not, but it is the policy. And someone like Bob Mueller, who was already under so much pressure and observation, does he deviate from the norm? He had to deal with the Peter Strzok problem. In all circumstances, prosecutors want other, you know, the, the general public to have faith in their decision and have faith that the decision was made on the up and up and had good legal basis and was not based on politics and was not result oriented. It was not based on, you know, personal preference. You want that to happen. And you really want that to happen when you're bringing very high stakes cases against elected, against elected officials who were duly put in their position, whether it's the governor of New York or the assembly speaker in the state of New York or the president of the United States. And I think it is, it is a reasonable way to think about it that if you're gonna do something like that, then you want the full weight of authority on your side so that there's maximum public faith, which is why I never expected Bob Mueller, no matter what evidence he had of the commission of a crime, of collusion or anything else, that he would violate that policy and I think it's probably the best practice for U.S. attorneys too. Now, I was in a debate, in a conversation with somebody who did a good job of parsing out the, the reason why I think that. And so I have an exception to this policy of not indicting the president. Mostly I think you wanna follow the policy, not necessarily because it is a policy, but because I believe very strongly in this idea, and it permeates the book, that you want people to trust that the decisions you're making are made for the right reason. And if you cut a corner or you violate a policy, even in doing the right thing, you give a lot of fodder to a lot of people that will cause reasonable folks to not trust the decision you made. The except, and, and, and in particular, I don't think that even if there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt of something, even though it's serious, of a campaign finance violation, like it seems that Michael Cohen has implicated Donald Trump in, that a campaign finance violation you would indict over the policy of the Department of Sitting President of the United States. I don't see that because it would cause too many people to wonder why you did that, given the policy. On the other hand, to pick a hypothetical that is you know, extreme, if you had absolute evidence that the President of the United States you know, strangled an adversary to death in the Oval Office, you'd charge that. And that seems like a contradiction. It's not so much because if you had evidence of a crime of that severity, uh, and you had overabundant, absolute documentary you know, video proof, for example, then the violation of that policy is not gonna cause anyone any grief because it's such a serious crime. And so that might, that might sound like a contradiction, and, and, and maybe you can be critical of the way I'm thinking about it, but to me, the most important thing in doing something that's very fraught and high stakes, where there's lots and lots of people who are, who are watching and and don't believe that things are being done for the right reasons. This is the reason why Jim Comey got in trouble and why he felt the need to speak. In that environment, 
you have to have something very, very serious and very, very, very clearly true and provable so that the country will go along with you if you do something like that. One more question over here. Thank you so much for coming to Seattle. <laughs> um, and my question has a little bit to do with the first question about Curtis Flowers and so many cases like that. How do you feel about the notion of ever like deprivatizing defense law, um, where everybody had equal representation and you didn't? I'm sorry, have I didn't get the last one. Deprivatizing deep, deep defense law. So that everybody got equal representation, there wasn't, if you have millions of dollars, oh, you I can see, hire better representation. Like, is that something that could happen? And if it could, do you think it would be a good idea? So I haven't thought about that deeply. Um, I mean, I think you get a lot of objections because, you know, people have, uh, you know, certain freedoms that they believe that they should be able to have. Um, I do agree with the principle, and I think there's a problem with, you know, multi-tier justice and people who have fancy expensive lawyers get better quality of justice than others, in particular, with respect to the death penalty. So many death penalty cases, so many people who end up spending time on death row who ultimately get executed are there because their lawyers didn't do the right job. That's why you see all these you know, famous cases where uh, death penalty uh, sentences are, are undone because of the bad quality of the lawyers. And which is why also some you know, people of goodwill and good faith who are very, very smart, who don't get paid money, like Brian Stevenson, who's an amazing person who I had on my podcast <laughs> just three weeks ago, try to go in and fill the void of you know, not so competent lawyering. So I think, we do, I think we do have to spend a lot of time thinking about the ways in which we can equalize access to justice and quality justice for lots of people. I don't know if that particular thing uh, would, would fly or make sense. But there's lots of other things that are less radical that could equalize the system as well. Thank you. And over here. Hello. Hi, my name is Laura. I live here in Seattle, but I'm originally from New York. And I just wanted to first thank you for everything you did to, sorry, I'm going to get emotional, protect New York, my family and friends that are there. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and second, one of the big issues as she had just mentioned is uh, inequality, access to um, uh, proper legal defense, but also in terms of so many people of color and minorities being maybe overly or harshly sentenced, and then you juxtapose that to the otherwise blameless life of uh, Paul <laughs> Manafort. <Yeah. laughs> um, and I, I just wanted to get <laughs> I just wanted to get your opinion on um, how do you balance sympathy and fairness and minimum sentence in, in the law. So I thought the most difficult part of the book to write was the last section. You know, the book's in four sections, so that's sort of the arc of any case. Inquiry, the investigation, accusation, which is the charging, judgment, which is the rendering of a verdict uh, or a guilty plea, and then punishment. Uh, as I reveal in the book, one of the reasons that I've never aspired to be a judge is that I don't want to be sitting in a robe up at the bench and having to decide about anybody, black, white, brown, or, or anyone, what's the precise number of months or years that justice requires you to be separated from your liberty. And it may be odd sounding to some people, but I th there's, there's a big distinction in my mind between arguing that someone is guilty of a crime uh, that I had no problem with 
but then deciding what is the what is the precise sentence based on some chart that sentencing guidelines put forward that looks like a big more like a bingo card than a recipe for you know fairness and justice I'm, I'm just not cut out for that kind of thing and so you know the, the, the very idea and this is going to sound overly esoteric the very idea that you can decide with precision and mathematical certainty how to balance those things and what the right sentence is, I think is basically an impossibility. But you, you do the best you can. And how you balance a white collar crime versus street crime, there are differences within those categories, right? There are some white collar defendants who have caused so much more pain than people who have committed certain kinds of street crimes. You know, a victimless uh, small narcotics transaction may cause you to get a certain kind of sentence in, in the state, you know, when prosecuted by a DA, whereas a white collar crime uh, that didn't involve any violence might cause, you know, five victims to lose their life savings, which is worse. And the reverse is also true. It's also true when, when people just say sort of blithely that white collar and, and street crimes are the same, it depends on what the crime is. There are also, uh, you know, white collar crimes that, that garner huge sentences. If you cook the books a little bit at a company that doesn't actually cause any particular victim harm, but causes you know a multi-billion-dollar company to have slightly inflated, and this is this is what some judges have said. I'm not not saying that I necessarily believe this, but this is an argument that people have made. Um, because of the dollar value of that fraud, even though the person himself has not pocketed any money, has had no self-enrichment, may cause a certain quantum of harm. Whereas, you know, there are street crimes where people stab people to death. And there are gang crimes that are much worse than that kind of white-collar crime. So I think it sort of depends. Uh, and I think you need you know, folks who are uh, humane, who are thoughtful, who believe both in consistency and uniformity of sentences and also individualized justice. And those two things are intention, right? That's why you have sentencing guidelines, because people wanted to make sure that just because you're arrested in Seattle versus the Bronx versus Mississippi, and you're the same kind of person with the same kind of crime and the same kind of criminal background, there shouldn't be a huge discrepancy in your sentence. On the other hand, if you become too auto automatic and you have you know, these numerical guidelines, then you're not doing individualized justice. It's a long-winded way of saying it's very difficult, it's very hard. I think we need more thoughtful people to think about how to undo some of those discrepancies. And at the end of the day, based on the example you mentioned, I thought Paul Manafort got off light. It should have been a higher sentence given the brazenness of his crime, how long it occurred, uh, and how he should have known better. But it was not an insubstantial sentence. There was a bit of an outcry when I suggested that it might be the last question over there. So if you're willing, we'll go one more round. All right. You up for it? One this here, is always one the here. dangerous one. Yeah. It's always this last one. Make them good. Yeah, I'm a shill. Yeah, I'm planted. Hi, Preet. Hi. Um, in light of your new career, podcaster, author, if your phone were to ring at some point in the future and uh, you get the call to be attorney general, would you consider it? And part two is, since your father's not here, would you please bless us with an impression of your dad? <laughs> um, I, I believe in public service. I like public service. If there's an opportunity to serve again, if it's the right thing and right for my family, I would, I would consider any, any offer to be in public service, if it, if it makes sense.
I'll tell, I'll tell the quick story. You know, I, I, left, I left out an impression of my father in the earlier story I told, where I was, I was talking about how the president-elect would call me from time to time. And people often make excuses about Donald Trump. And they say, well, he doesn't understand the protocols. Uh, you know, he's just a guy who picks up the phone. And he's not so you know, involved with the guidance and what the White House counsel says, whatever. And so maybe he didn't understand that he's not supposed to call you, uh, and you should give him some slack. And, and I, I tell the story about how I, I told my dad that Trump was calling me, and my father is an Indian immigrant, is a retired pediatrician, no background in law or ethics or anything else, uh, who spent 45 years uh, practicing uh, medicine in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And when I told him these things, he said to me, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that man calling you. <laughs> I really hope he stops. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I tell one more? Yeah. Because he's not here. <laughs> so, la so last spring, when I was really struggling, I worked really hard on this book. Writing a book is really, really hard. Maybe because I'm an immigrant. But it was really hard. So last spring, I went to, uh, I went to the shore, and I, I decided to sit with my files and with my laptop, and I wrote, you know, I tried to write a couple of chapters, including a chapter on cooperators, when I was at the beach in Long Branch, New Jersey. And during the week, um, I didn't shave. You know, and so for the first time, I grew this thing. And, and so I came back, I sort of kept it, because now it was, you know, it was there. And whenever I appear on, on television, my parents watch still. And I told, and I sent a, I sent a text to my, my folks saying, uh, you know, FYI, I'm gonna be on, you know, Anderson Cooper or whatever tonight. Uh, but, you know, I haven't shaved. <laughs> so give them the warning. And so my mom responds by text uh, in the way you expect your mother to respond. It's like, that's okay. My son always look handsome. <laughs> and, then, and then my dad responded, and he wrote, I could not listen to what you were talking. <laughs> Wait. I could not listen to what you were talking. I was just staring at your face. And then he writes, did you not have time? <laughs> or did you want to look like that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a real text, and I, I, can, I can prove it to you. <laughs> That's my dad. That's a great note to end on, I think. Sure. Right. <laughs> Happy to end it there.
greatest time ever. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good time. Yeah, I think I should.